Yes, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we talk about autocorrelation as a deal breaker for science-based management and I'm talking here about conservation management. Um, I will show you in the net next elaboration about uh, autocorrelation that a real true science-based management has often not achieved and probably is not even achievable, but that's an interesting question. So um, let me elaborate a little bit on autocorrelation because for many it's probably a new item and you haven't really, really been aware of um, how relevant autocorrelation is and what it means. So what is autocorrelation? Autocorrelation is also known as a serial correlation. That is a correlation of a signal with um, yeah, a, a copy of itself that shows up uh, in a, with a delay. Um, and um, there's basically a similarity between observations uh, with a certain time lag among them, okay? Um, so as you know, in geography, um, things that are close to each other are usually related. And uh, in most cases, it means the closer they are, the more the correlation is, although this can also be opposite. Uh, if you ask me for an example, um, there are in serial data, in time series data, you find that very strongly that there are certain patterns and they're usually always showing up in clusters. But you can also look into spatial autocorrelation and you might find that um, a certain fish individual is attracted to another fish and the other fish attracts to the first individual. So you have a mutual attraction. That's some sort of correlation right there. Um, as a matter of fact, most animals that are social live in social societies and communities and that's some sort of a social attraction also. So any social being, which are basically all all of life really, is, is in, in a way correlated and certainly uh, and often autocorrelated. Um, you can think about a predator being related to a prey and vice versa. Um, and that might be a negative autocorrelation because they avoid each other, but sometimes they also show up in big numbers when you think of vultures. So anyway, there are some of those interactions and, you, and, and these, these correlations. Here I'm talking about autocorrelation. So you should think about it. Um, for instance, uh, some birds are very curious. And if you are a bird watcher or a bird observer and want to do a statistically sound number for birds um, and the birds come to you, that's obviously a bias. And um, um, the humans come to the bird habitat to count them and the birds and come to the humans, um, that obviously is some sort of autocorrelation with a delay even or something like that. Um, so most animals that you survey, let's say for conservation management, uh, suffer from this type of, of errors either way. They are not independent events, of course not. Um, now, people have also applied autocorrelation to uh, geology, specifically finding gold and drilling for gold, because gold and these, these deposits often occur in, in clusters, and there's some sort of a nugget effect that you want to get at. And um, <clears throat> the other uh, correlation issue, autocorrelation, of course, is a time series one, when you have data that uh, you've collected over 100 years, let's say, and um, you see there are certain patterns. Um, so you cannot really take them uh, for independent samples or independent um, information, independent data. Um, in nature, autocorrelation is inherently there. Nature is autocorrelated. So you cannot really uh, get rid of it, and you shouldn't really, because if you get rid of autocorrelation, then you create a bias. You create a uh, completely artificial data set, um, and I come back to that in a minute. The reason why you have autocorrelation, there could be different factors uh, when it comes to bird surveys, as an example, or whale surveys, whatever you do, of surveys. And often there's an alert 
and this that the observer is really um, alert and suddenly it counts much more than when you watch for five hours on the surface of the ocean don't see a whale and think there is none coming so anyway you get these type of clustering effects um in, in many accounts the real issue though is gravity i think um when you are familiar with the body to body problem or the three end problem um that is when uh, one body um, has a certain gravity which attracts the other body and therefore they show up in a assemble basically you can actually argue that the solar system is some sort of autocorrelated um because um yeah you get the, the galaxy and um, all the stuff is clustered there in the wider universe so um as i said you cannot simply cor uh, correct for it you cannot simply model it away because um number one if you get these so-called independent samples then um you create an artifact and then you analyze them with a methodology that requires uh, independent samples so you have a uh, a bias on a bias. Um, the problem really is that uh, you look at these data collected from nature with some sort of requirement of independent samples and independent errors, or a certain error distribution at least. That's very common in frequency statisti statistics, and um, obviously it's less of a problem in machine learning, AI, but it also might occur there. So um, when you draw an inference on this type of, of reasoning using hypothesis testing, um, um, with some sort of significance testing, then you probably have uh, one of those issues. Now, um, often people say, hey, I only have a mild autocorrelation. Well, at least you have one and you should address it because it will otherwise affect your variance. You might have inflated variance and so on. Um, so what is done about it? Well, welcome to the field of geostat geostatistics. Geostatistics is a whole discipline in statistics that deals with usually the location itself. So let's say latitude, long longitude or with the attributes related to that location. There are packages that can handle that, and the um, statistical language or marking language, coding language of R um, has a lot of interesting tools on this, which I will cover in a minute. Um, but you also find it in other statistics packages, including SAS or MathLab and so on. Um, what geostatistics can tell you is how big is, for instance, the, uh, the nugget, like <clears throat> the autocorrelated pattern, how big is, is the, uh, the cluster? And the idea is if you know what this extent is of this uh, clustering, then you don't need to put many samples there perhaps because it will all give you the same answer. So gold is there or the gold is not there, let's say. Um, but um, it also applies to other questions, including the likelihood of finding oil, let's say, oil drilling. I mean, where do you put the drilling hole? <clears throat> uh, I mentioned already fish surveys, or you want to sample everything what's in the ocean or what's in the soil. Um, so it has a real-world application um, for survey work. Um, there are metrics that you can use in geostatistics. One is called a Moran's I. That's a metric that will express it. Another one is Ripley's K. Be aware that they are not necessarily using the same formula and therefore actually don't give you necessarily on, on a micro scale at least the same answer. So be aware. Um, basically, what these, these metrics can show you is at what distance, at what lag, it's a, it's a lag question here, uh, um, let's say in space, um, does the correlation start or, or decrease or increase, um, indicating the nugget effect and, and, and other, other questions you're after. You basically should be able to identify a scale, um, like a pixel size, an extent, when your sample becomes independent. That is obviously informative. You can also look into the question, when is the variance uh, starting decreasing or increasing? Um, now, what really is the problem? Um, well, the real problem is that um, autocorrelation occurs, we know, 
um, we know the ecosystems are dynamic, so you cannot just assume a static system. You sample that out and correct for autocorrelation. That's obviously not possible. Autocorrelation is, is, is not fixed. The other thing is that autocorrelation, and that's very interesting here, is that autocorrelation is not symmetrical. That means it's not a, a bell-shaped curve in most cases. Um, you cannot really apply probability theory or any of the frequency statistics to it truly when you really deal with nature events. It's a gross assumption to assume that uh, there is symmetry. And when you look at the textbooks about autocorrelation, you will fi easily find that. You either find that people claim, okay, let's look at autocorrelation in a symmetric fashion. That's certainly, um, in my view, not, not appropriate because it's not even provable that it is symmetric. Um, now, here is another deal breaker on this issue of autocorrelation and the science that tries to analyze data, and that is called anisotropy. The um, anisotropic uh, autocorrelation means there's a direction in it. So rather than thinking that uh, autocorrelation is equally distributed in 360 degrees around you or around the event that you're dealing with or the point or the location, instead it has a direction and it might be stronger in one angle than in another angle. And that really is very difficult to deal with because number one, you need good data to prove it and B, you need to good data to overcome it. Um, it's just uh, the, the autocorrelation is not necessarily distributed all over the directions. It's It has a certain direction. That's called anisotropy. That really is difficult to handle. Um, as I mentioned, it's difficult to sample in general. Let's say you want to know where the fish is in the Atlantic and uh, or in an exclusive economic zone or where the seabirds are, whatever you're dealing with, the whales in Antarctica. I mean, all these estimates are basically affected by autocorrelation. And you re unless you really get the right handle on the right scale at time, um, you probably will be off in your estimates, certainly in your variances. So scaling is really important. And um, it's, again, difficult to sample in space and time. Um, this obviously is a very interesting question, if not even a philosophical one, but it will affect your conclusions. Okay. Um, basically any of the statistical tests ever published when you look at them, uh, will be affected at least when it comes to conservation and nature by these autocorrelation issues. When you look at these specific papers I mentioned, they're often not dealing with autocorrelation. So in other words, the scientific literature makes a really relatively poor job. Uh, in, in handling autocorrelation. Uh, time series, as I mentioned, that includes um, commercial and economic time series, um, let's say stock market type of things, and people have looked at this. Um, but um, anyway, in, in, in uh, wildlife and conservation question, you find it actually pretty poorly applied. Um, you can go one step further and can look into social systems and psychology, uh, medical questions where you have the same issue. So... Um, there is really no good solution and it's again not well addressed and people usually say well i only have a small problem and, and i ignore it or something that's very common um but um it obviously is is um it's out there um so what to do about it um autocorrelation has been labeled a red herring um and it is but rather than seeing it as a problem and trying to model it out or get rid of it, what I like to say, um, it's uh, you can use it to your advantage. That's what you probably should do. Number one, you should acknowledge it, it's there. Secondly, I think you should probably uh, think about um, how you can like describe it <clears throat> in a good way. There's a question about research design. I think most research designs um, have a trouble with it. Even the textbooks don't deal very well with autocorrelation when they tell you how to sample things. Um, and so, yeah, describe autocorrelation and then try to um, 
perhaps used to your advantage. What I mean by this is if you find there are the clusters, then you can say, hey, there are clusters and these clusters have a biological meaning and you can in include this in your conclusion. Um, if you work with predictive work, you can bring in the autocorrelations in your predictions and then it gives you much better output and much better predictions and better inference. So um, in reality, I would argue that autocorrelation is your friend. It's not your enemy. You should embrace autocorrelation, but you should really know about autocorrelation. That's the key, key issue. Um, so when you look at the conservation literature specifically and science-based conservation, I think you run into this question that uh, autocorrelation is virtually absent in the keywords. And there's a reason for it, which I have already out outlined to you. The surprising thing is that um, people have looked in autocorrelation, into autocorrelation for a long time. It's probably around for over yeah, 30 years, I think, at least. Um, and um, there are some very good works in on on autocorrelation, not only in wildlife and in conservation science, but as I mentioned, geostatistics and fisheries uh, and then sampling theory and so on. So, I mean, it's out there. The plant people have dealt with it for a long time. Um, there are some books on, on these uh, distribution of trees, distribution of uh, root networks and of plants, of flowers and so on. Very interesting, fascinating readings. Um, but um, you can learn from this. But um, what I'm trying to get at here is that uh, when you think of autocorrelation in telemetry data, in uh, GPS location data and satellite tagging data, which currently is such a big evolving field, you will be, again, amazed that autocorrelation is there, but um, it's not well tackled. I think there's a lot you can learn from autocorrelation. So um, that's my point. Um, last but not least, I'd like to mention that um, um, the law and the management theory and the policy and the legal documents and the legal decision-making uh, has virtually no handle on autocorrelation. Like you will not find a law, a conservation law, uh, that really uh, handles um, autocorrelation, the issue of serial correlation in itself. Um, it's it's not used. It's it's either absent or incompetent or um, yeah, ignoring it or I don't know. <laughs> it's not making use of it. It's not requiring it. Um, I'm giving you some examples. Uh, when you think of the uh, um, International Whaling Commission, how they obtain the estimates on whale numbers, or when you think of any of the harvest quota settings, or when you think of zooplankton harvest in Antarctica, or I mean, you name it, um, uh, red deer quota setting or something about harvest, uh, it's not there and the laws don't require it and consequently get ignored. Mm, I think it's a really good exercise to see how big autocorrelation really is. Um, it's probably not, perhaps not always a deal breaker, I get that. But certainly uh, the probability theory won't hardly be valid. Uh, the confidence estimates will hardly be valid either way. Uh, you can't really trust them because of autocorrelation variances. Um, and um, yeah, it might be 5%, it might be 15%, perhaps sometimes more, but um, it's probably in that range. And uh, you can basically challenge most of the uh, outputs and the inference on that level. Um, for some endangered species, that certainly is very relevant. Um, for others, it's more uh, theoretical, conceptual issue that you want to be correct and you are not. So um, that's what I wanted to say. Um, I have given you some citations that I find pretty good on this issue or that I've mentioned in the podcast. Um, again, even, even some of the classic textbooks are, are not really advanced in my view on what can be done with autocorrelation. I think it should receive a renewed interest and uh, looking closer at it with uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and so on. 
um, simply because uh, when you handle these complexities in autocorrelation questions, uh, the linear functions will not able to handle it really well. So the question is, and can can these artificial intelligence algorithms handle it better? They certainly can capture it much better. I'm convinced about that. Uh, when it comes to predictions, they're probably also a little bit better. So it's not super easy to, to model, but you, you can um, just capture the autocorrelation itself and then model that out in a predictive framework. There should be ways to do it, and this should allow you to generalize better. It's not perfect, but that would be my um, thought. Um, I haven't worked on it too much myself. I did some work on autocorrelation, but not too much, um, and certainly not with machine learning much. So um, think about it. Um, I'm pointing it out to you. I think it's pretty powerful as a concept either way. You can uh, dismiss many of the hypotheses and many of the classic work works. Um, unfortunately, the scientific literature is probably um, has learning shortcomings on this. Uh, so the in inference and the knowledge we currently use to manage species. And that's why I find um, it's a certain deal breaker. Okay, I leave it there. I'm happy to uh, hear your opinion and uh, your views on this. Happy to discuss it with you. Please follow up with me. But um, yeah, give it a thought about autocorrelation and um, how it applies to your data and uh, to your conservation problem and to your conservation policy problem. That's actually a pretty interesting topic. Okay, thanks so much for your time. Bye-bye.